Kevin Hargadon, you are the social justice theologian at the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice here in Dublin in Ireland. But you've been on your travels and that's because as a theologian, you're also part of the Notre Dame Centre for Social Concerns. And they have an interesting project, a Just Wave initiative, which took you to Bangladesh, to Dakar recently. Tell me about the initiative and the journey. Uh, thanks, Pat. Um, I'm just a, a friend of the Centre for Social Concerns, lest it, uh, either Notre Dame or Jesuits start to think that I'm double jobbing. But uh, they um, uh, invited me out to participate in this conference in October, which brought together academics from Western Europe and the United States and academics and activists from Bangladesh and from India to consider this really excellent application of Catholic social teaching that the Centre for Social Concerns has developed under the work of Dan Graff, who's a labour historian in Notre Dame, and it's called the Just Wage Initiative. And it's a framework built deeply on the foundations of Catholic social teaching that allows any group of people, employers or employees, to consider what makes a given wage just Mm -hmm. or unjust, um, we went to Bangladesh to test out this idea has worked in the Western world, but how does it how does it work in such a radically different economic context? Yeah. And who did you speak to and who did you meet there? The conference was a joint effort between Notre Dame, the one that we're familiar with, the Fighting Irish in Indiana, and the University of Notre Dame in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. which is established in, a, in the last 10 years by the Holy Cross Fathers. So they brought together lawyers, trade union activists, workers' rights activists, and a lot of academics from the business school. So from the Bangladeshi side, there was immense local knowledge and also an appreciation from a bunch of different perspectives. Like somebody from a business school has a very different understanding of the problem from somebody who's actually a garment worker who has become an activist. The conversation was incredibly winsome. It was interreligious, you know, uh, Islamic and Christian perspectives and cross-disciplinary and really constructive. So it was a fascinating experience aside from... aside from The importance of the topic. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Just the whole methodology. And, and how many were there just? Uh, it would have been about 30 in total. How long were you there for? It was a, literally a flying visit. I think I spent more time in airports and the airplanes than in Dhaka. So it was a three-day conference and that consisted both of academic work, interreligious work and then field trips. So uh, the most striking field trips were Mm. a visit to agricultural workers and farmers in what's now the outlying suburbs of Dhaka, which was until very recently uh, rural ground. And they spoke with incredible profundity about the consequences of industrialised agriculture and climate breakdown. It was utterly terrifying, really, to hear them describe what they are confronting. And then that afternoon... And what, what are they? Like, they tell us, I presume it's like the floods in Bangladesh are well known now and to be a part of the whole climate disaster. Yeah, and we can appreciate that in a kind of abstract level and it's, it's scary and it's concerning. But when you see somebody speaking, I particularly remember one farmer, he was about the age of my father and reminded me of my father a good few years past retirement and, he, and this guy was still working. He said that he was working his land before the English came, before the Portuguese came. You know, so this is land that has been handed down generation to generation for centuries. And he said that this is the first year in all of the memory when they have not been able to grow enough rice and they've had to go to the market. So his entire family identity has been invested in the wholesome task of growing food for their neighbours. And now they're not able 
to cover even their own consumption, never mind that of others. So his children and grandchildren are not going to be farmers. And he said that he loses three acres every year to climate breakdown. What happens is the floods come and the soil washes away and the nutrients are gone. And there's other factors as well in terms of the expansion of DACA. There's sabotage of the land by property developers. There's all kinds of dreadful, nefarious corruption. But the fundamental challenge that these guys are facing is the consequences of carbon capitalism. So they have to pay money for their seed. They have to pay something. Would you explain that? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I get, I'm such a suburban boy that I am t- terrified to wade into this because I might make the most stupid of mistakes. But as I understand it, plants grow their own seeds. And historically, you were able to harvest those seeds and set them aside for next year. And the situation is that uh, with the genetically modified seed, if you short circuit the purchase process, Mm -hmm. then you have committed a form of theft. So you have to buy those seeds every year. And for very large farms and for well-resourced agriculture, that's not necessarily a problem. And the benefits that the seeds bring in terms of blight resistance and so on, it makes sense on a cost-benefit analysis, but it puts incredible pressure on the small farmers, uh, the kind of family farms. So the situation is that they can find themselves very quickly in debt that accumulates to bankruptcy. I mean, it really is fundamental our food production system and these guys were absolutely vocational farmers they loved their land and they're seeing it literally wash away and like you threw in there genetically modified seed but that was something that in Ireland was a massive fight to keep GM food out of the food system because of the dangers that can be there and yet there that's just happened anyway and it's still not cutting them any slack at all Yeah, it seems just an absurd situation for a guy who's sitting on top of centuries of local knowledge to be in a situation where he has to pay intellectual property rights, basically, to to some lab on the other side of the planet. But this is the absurd global economic system that we're in. The garment workers that I was talking with, they're looking for pay rises of six cent per garment. (laughs) You know, it's, it's literally pennies. And yet we're not able to achieve that. So the system, mammon, whatever you want to call it, is so voracious and it's consuming the earth's resources and it's consuming these people's lives. One garment worker was asked, what would you want us to go back and tell our students in Ireland, in Austria, in America? And she said, I want you to tell them that your clothes are stained with our blood. Wow. This was a woman much younger than me who had taken time off at her expense to come and talk to us. And she was not seeking attention. She was just trying to communicate the truth that their lives are squashed, stretched thin beyond the point of breaking. And we go to buy a 3.99 pair of slacks. I'll give you an example of how this happens. I met an amazing trade union activist in Bangladesh and the conversation with that person was unbelievably eye-opening. And they told me about their moment, their epiphany, where they really dedicated themselves to the life of fighting for just labour conditions. They had been invited to America by a trade union to come and speak to a panel conversation about global supply chains. And they were in New York and the heavens opened And they took refuge in the nearest shop, which I won't mention the name of the shop, but it's a a famous American fashion label. And they went in and noticed immediately that there was a pair of jeans hanging on the rack that they used to make. And they said that when they saw the price of the jeans on the rack, 
they screamed so loudly that security came running thinking that there had been an attack in the store because I'm not going to give the exact figures here, but they got paid less than a euro and the jeans were close to 100 euros. So the sheer scale of exploitation at play there was scandalising even to a person who had spent not just her adult life, but but she actually had to start working. Uh, Although she was intellectually gifted, she had to start working in the factory at the age of 14 because of family and needing the wages. Even she could still be shocked at that point, at the extent to which her work was just being exploited. And, you know, things have improved. These companies are doing lots to try to improve things. But the fundamental fact is that it continues to be a profoundly exploitative business. They ended up in a very expensive designer place, the same jeans. Could they also equally end up cheaper somewhere else? Yeah, this is something that an Irish friend wanted me to ask about because they had thought, well, it was maybe a way for them to just justify their own spending money on designer labels, that it would be more ethical. But it was clearly explained to me that the jeans that you buy in the high street for five euros and the jeans that you buy in the deluxe shopping mall for 150 euros are made by the same people at the same desks in the same factories. And there are differences in terms of stitching and so on. There are real differences. And there's an amazing amount of skill involved in this work. Like no robot is going to be able to put a shirt together. And the people who are putting our clothes together have extraordinary skills that they've refined over years. Uh, So there is a material difference. But fundamentally, it's all coming from one big giant industrial behemoth. And the bottom line is the person who's making it with all those skills is getting paid buttons no matter where the garment ends up or what talent they put into it. I mean, they're not getting paid enough money to put food on their table, to pay for their electricity and to put their kids in school. They're working incredibly long hours under absolute passive harassment. If they step out of line at all, there's a million ways for them to be kicked out. And there's a thousand people who'll take the job. And also we're told that the solution is not to stop buying because then they won't have any work at all. Is that correct? I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I immediately think I'm never buying cheap clothes from Bangladesh again. But that's not a necessarily a solution either. Is it the just wage campaign and supporting that? Or what can people do here so far away? Well, there are a bunch of different factors there that intersect. And this is not my area. You know, Pat, I'm a mm-hmm. theologian and not a logistics chain expert. Uh, But from my conversations in Bangladesh, what I uh, have realised is that it's entirely correct that we can't stop buying our clothes. I mean, so it's not the case that if you just go to a more expensive shop, you've got more ethical clothes. And it's, it's not the case that the corporations in the Western world are necessarily evil. In fact, they almost all have all kinds of systems in place to try to create an ethical chain. The reality is that Uh, intermediaries are able to intervene there and create impressions that don't bear on the ground. So like, you know, somebody goes out from Copenhagen and does inspections, but they can be manipulated according to the people who I was talking with. In one case, what was described was a situation where a factory, when it has an inspection, opens a crash and everybody has to bring their kids to work that day. And so the person comes from Western Europe and thinks, oh, I've been totally misled. These people are being very well cared for. But they go home and the crash closes again. Right. And sexual harassment is rife. There was fundamental abuses of people's low education standards. So somebody told a story about how they protested sexual harassment 
and they were guided through a system that they thought was a grievance process and they were asked to sign a piece of paper to agree that they had entered into this process and the next day they came to work and the piece of paper that they had signed was filled up with a resignation letter where the employee notionally voided all of their claims to any kind of pay and entitlements. These kinds of just incredibly dark employment practices are at play and it's impossible for somebody in an office in Berlin or in London to have a grasp of that. We can't stop buying clothes, we can't go naked, but one trade union activist told me that on average a British person buys 19 kilograms of clothes a year. So we don't have to keep buying so much clothes. As my colleague Kira Murphy would very happily evangelise, we can engage in circular economy activities, buy second-hand clothes, repair clothes. All of that is a way to slow this relentless behemoth of a fast fashion. Does that not affect but the workers and are they not going to be out of jobs? Yeah, but that, then the, the other thing as well is to lobby hard in the European Union for logistic chain transparency. This is one strong way to solve the problem, which is a law that's being passed in Germany. On the 1st of January, you can't sell anything in Germany unless you're able to, with precise detail, describe how that product got to Germany. That forces companies to look a little bit more closely at the intermediaries and to demand that there's a bit of scrutiny there. And do you think there'll need to be more scrutiny given that somebody can throw open a crash for a day and then close it afterwards? I mean, maybe they should be staying around for a week or two and doing a bit more incognito, like cop on. Yeah, well, I think it's difficult for somebody from you know, Western Europe to go incognito in, in DACA. That's one of the things that struck me. It's like, well, know, employ somebody yeah, that yeah. goes with you, I, do you I, know, or, yeah. or employ somebody I, to do it. I, I think in reality, we know in broad brushstrokes exactly how this is happening. And we can't have the kind of globalised capitalism that we have and have a just wage for Bangladeshi workers. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to go and, and create a new economic system from scratch, but it does mean that we have to restrain our desire so that the market signals are no longer there to say you should keep doing what you're doing. We should develop the kinds of governance processes that are able to encourage Western firms into better, better practices. But the real thing we have to do is to try to find ways to empower the people in Bangladesh who are working on this. They're incredibly dedicated, in- incredibly committed and incredibly creative about how they can respond in their context. Well, so, they must have welcomed you being over there then, the people coming from far enough away to come and be with them and listen and learn from them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was. That's a whole other conversation, a more niche conversation about how they felt like it was incredibly rare for uh, not me, but the others in the group, fancy Western academics, uh, to come and pay attention to the work that they're doing. Because the whole knowledge production system in the Western universities is so elitist for all of its talk about inclusion and diversity. But uh, one of the things that really struck us is that the business schools in Bangladesh are much closer to the people than the business schools in Dublin or in uh, Notre Dame. So it wasn't the case that we had trade unionists from Bangladesh and then, you know, kind of metaphorically on the other side of the room, the business school people, which is what we'd have in Dublin. The business school people recognised that there was no sustainable economic practice that led to worker injustice. So, of course, there will be disputes about the details, but they were all moving in the same direction. 
that reminds me that we have to be able to find some way to put the power back into the hands of the workers here because the culture has resources, has riches built into it that we don't, that we've lost. And how could we do that to find a way? Is it a governmental, is it a trade union initiative, is it a business school in Trinity initiative? uh, Well, trade union solidarity probably, like internationalist trade union solidarity I mean, it's all so complicated because Irish trade unions are weak and getting weaker. I mean, they're like the church. It feels like they have no morale from my exposure to them. So if you can't get a large number of people out to protest housing in Ireland, how are you going to get a large bunch of people out to protest workers' conditions in the majority world? But we can incrementally chip away at this. And I think that's another principle of Catholic social teaching that's very useful, that we don't seek revolution. We seek slow concrete developments informed by the contexts in question. So it's unsatisfying because we want to be able to purchase a simple solution off the shelf. Yeah, like we're <laughs> like used to. Fast like we're used to, to go yeah. with fast fashion. But there really isn't any straightforward answer. I think it would be a significant ethical step for us to recognise that we are sitting on top of a vast machine that is consuming human lives as well as the resources of the earth for our benefit. Here's one example There's a lot of talk about the cost of living crisis and there is a cost of living crisis that's afflicting people in Ireland. But there are ways in which our low cost of living has been subsidised by the suffering of others. So even for ourselves to disentangle some of our self-obsessed slash self-interested economic concern in the global picture uh, would be useful. Again, I I listen to you saying that and you think... It's always but the poor here who suffer the yeah. most. I mean, they need the cheaper clothes. Do you know, the, the, they can't afford to buy designer end clothes. It would die at the price of some of the things. But, but let's remember that the designer clothes are made in the same factories. Yeah. Everything I'm wearing was either bought in pennies or same as the ball. I love pennies. Yeah. So the problem isn't pennies. The problem isn't that poor people are buying too much clothes. The problem is that the entire economic system is geared towards more and more growth. And it's become impossible for us to consider to what end. And it shouldn't be understood as something that can be resolved with just a little bit more ethical consumption. If you happen to have enough money to buy only handmade linen clothes produced in Connemara by an artisan who has 15 years of training, that's great. But you aren't actually addressing the problem. As you've said, the garment workers in Bangladesh aren't helped by that. What we're looking for is for consumers to approach the task of filling the wardrobe with the appropriate amount of clothes in a way that is at least mindful of the suffering that's entailed in that. What about then the other obstacles? Because, you you know, we we know and are familiar with here the campaign for a living wage and for a minimum rate per hour and things like that. And that's a campaign that continues and moves on. It's not without its difficulties, but it, it has been effective. But it strikes me that you're facing really huge problems in the developing world and places like Bangladesh. Yeah, one of the most surprising things about the development of the Just Wage initiative, and if you go onto uh, the Social Concerns website, if you Google Notre Dame Social Concerns Just Wage initiative, you'll find this a very useful website that allows you to hypothesise about different wage scenarios. One of the things that they found when they have workshopped this with people in the United States is that employers are incredibly enthusiastic about it because employers want to be able to think of themselves and to be perceived as being just. They much prefer the language of just wages to living wage because they feel like a living wage could float off into a massive inflationary process, whereas a just wage 
what's built in there is some kind of commensurate conversation. So the trip to Bangladesh was an attempt to see if, in a radically different economic context, does this language hold? And what we found is, unfortunately, there's big challenges there. It would be wonderful if South Asian garment workers could think about things in terms of a just wage, but they are honestly fighting for subsistence wage, not even minimum wage, not even living wage. And so the idea of justice is almost teasing. The companies that we're talking about, in some cases, they employ 400,000 people. They have their own television stations. And invariably, the owners of these companies have immense political power in Cambodia and in Bangladesh and in the places where our clothes get made. So uh, the way that I'm thinking about it is it's not depressing. <laughs> I have to find a way. Struggle hard. Yeah, yeah. because it, what it demonstrates is that uh, the combination of forces, uh, which we attribute primarily to, to trade unions, but the church played a central role in this as well over the last 150 years in our part of the world, has created a context where it remains, even after three decades of neoliberalism in Ireland, it remains coherent to say we demand justice in employment terms. And that's an achievement. Brutal capitalism left unregulated and unrestrained produces a situation like Bangladesh where even to talk about justice appears to be a fantasy. So I've taken it as, after reflecting on the trip, what I am realising is that uh, the nexus, the, the kind of the overlapping point where the garment worker and the farmer meet me in the Western world with my privilege is that whatever transition we need to make to mitigate the climate and biodiversity collapse needs to factor in the material consequences for workers, Mm. especially the poorest and the most marginalised workers, which is a Catholic social teaching principle that we would put the poorest, the preferential option towards Mm. the poor. So what are you going to be doing now, Kevin? Where to from here? Uh, One of the things that we're going to do in the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice is dedicate an issue of working notes to the idea of a just wage. So we hope to have contributions from Bangladesh and from the University of Notre Dame. But then we're also going to contextualise the conversation here in Ireland, perhaps by looking at the difficulty of farmers having to balance the need for ecological farming with the incredible problem they have of getting a price from the supermarkets. Again, large intermediaries crushing the smaller actors. So we're going to consider the concept of a just wage from a bunch of different perspectives, uh, both Irish and global. And our hope then is to raise consciousness of the idea and of the usefulness of this just wage framework with the hope of incremental progress.